Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. It's okay. I want you to turn in your Bible to Psalm chapter 90. Have you been encouraged today? My goodness. My goodness. We've talked for five years about me coming out to preach, and I'm glad we waited till today. (laughs) Um, I want to talk to you about letting God write your story. How many of you would say, Pastor Kerry, my life has turned out exactly like I imagined it would when I was in high school? (laughs) Anyone? Just the high schoolers. Yeah, my life. You know, when you were younger, you had an idea. You had a story in mind. And you've been trying to write that story the whole time. The problem is, when you try to write your story, yourself, you're working with precious little information. You can't see the future. You're not considering that there's another story being written. You're not considering that you've been written into a bigger and a better story. And so what you end up doing is entering into kind of a low-grade wrestling match, kind of this low-grade tension that just exists in you because you're trying to manufacture a reality that doesn't exist. You're trying to bring your imagined reality, your imagined story, into existence. Now, on one level, we call those our hopes and our dreams and our ideals. And you know what? I'm not saying all that's wrong or bad or uh, not good. God gave you a, a heart and a mind and a capacity to dream. So intrinsically, those things are good. And having good desires to pursue is a good thing. But my point is, if you don't realize that God is writing the story If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then you're just kind of on your own working against the story that God's writing. And you don't even know that's happening, but but there's this tension in your soul. And even if you're a believer, you can sometimes subtly take the pen out of God's hands and start writing the story for yourself and saying, and then your approach to God is, come on, God, I need your help. I need you to make this happen. This is my story, and this is the one I'm writing, and this is what I want, and this is how I need you. And in that case, you've, turned, you've reduced God. You've turned him into a genie. And you put him into a magic lamp and rub the lamp when you need him to make your dreams come true. So honestly, we all at times live with this tension in our soul between the story we want to write, the story we want to live, the reality we want to have happen in our lives, and the story that God is writing in our lives, which we have really no power over. And that's why when I asked, how many of you are your stories, just like you thought it would be, everybody laughed. Because reality hit you along the way. And we heard in these testimonies, these incredible testimonies, all the ups and downs and all the brokenness and all the bad decisions and the regrets and all the pain and all the hurts. We're hearing these stories like, ah, that's terrible. I'm so sorry that happened to her. I'm so sorry he experienced that. 
And life just has a way when we're trying to write our story of just beating us to a pulp and grinding us into the dirt. Because that's what Satan does. He hates us. We are God's image bearers. We are God's creation. And Satan hates God's creation. He hates God. He hates God's order. He hates God's image bearers. And he will do anything and everything he can to destroy your story. And so today I want to encourage you from Psalm 90 to follow the testimony of these believers that have stood before you and to release the story, to give your story back to God because he knows the future. He writes great stories. He paid a dear price to get you back. And he's the only one that can really write the story that you were designed, you were created to live. You see, it's not, it's not that your story and his story are in conflict. It's that you've got these desires that you don't really quite know how to fulfill. And everything you try fails. And, and, and even if it succeeds, even if you're like, no, it worked for me, well, buckle up because you're going to lose it. That's why you insure it. That's why you medicate it. That's why you, 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 do it. you work hard to get the story you wanted and then, you're free, then, then you worry about losing it. And inevitably, you're going to. And so, how can we come into the story of all stories? How can we stop this fruitless journey of trying to write a story that isn't even real and that's only going to be lost in the end? And how can we embrace the story we were created to live? How can we embrace the script that God is writing in the big story that he's writing? Well, there's no better person to teach us this than the person of Moses. And when you look at Psalm 90, God just used this psalm. I'm not very scripted today, and I'm, I know there's nachos waiting, so and I've got a plane to catch too, by the way, so I, I've got to be on time. Even if I don't care about your nachos, I still have to get home. <laughs> and I do need to insert that when I'm done preaching, I probably will have to slip out quickly uh, because I've got to get to the airport. But... Um, I want you to see this psalm, and first thing I want, to, want you to see is before verse one, what does it say is the title of this psalm? Do you see it? A prayer of who? Moses. So this changes the whole context of what we're about to read, so let's think about Moses for a minute. That's really cool that this is a psalm written by Moses. It's cool because that makes this probably the oldest psalm in the whole 150 chapters of Psalms. It's cool because Moses was a writer. He wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and he wrote those books to teach a generation of redeemed slaves, people that had been enslaved in Egypt, that had come out into the wilderness and wandered for 40 years, and that generation died, and their children grew up, and now they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And he wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy to teach them all the things they needed to know about where they came from, who they are, what's wrong with them, who God is, what he's doing to make them right, what he's doing to save them and redeem them, and where he's taking them and how the story is going to end. He writes all those books to tell them that. And I, I really believe this is maybe the last thing he wrote. You're going to get a sense as we go through that this is the end of his life. 
because he's going to give us a, a broad panoramic view of life itself, and he's going to take us on a journey that's, that's kind of like a, a, a short 17-verse manual for life. My hope in the next 20 or 30 minutes is that you would fall in love with this psalm on a level that you will dive in and dig deeper and meditate on it and live in it for a few weeks because that's really what this psalm takes to really get deep into you. Every phrase, it would take me hours to go through it. It's rich, it's powerful, it's wonderful. But I want you to begin with this first thought. If you wanna, I have a sentence we're gonna build over the next few minutes and the first thought is this. The only story worth living. The only story worth living. So we're gonna consider Moses' story in a second, but I want you to look at verses one and two of this psalm. And this psalm is a roller coaster. It starts at a very high point with a vast panoramic view of glory and awe and wonder. And then at verse three, Moses is going to drop us literally on our heads. He's going to concuss us into an awareness, an awakeness of things we don't really want to talk about. Everybody loves verses 1 and 2, and everybody, everybody loves verses 12 through 17, and nobody loves verses 3 to 11. So are you guys okay? You, you love the Bible, right? You love Scripture? Talk to me. Help me out. You guys love the Scripture? So here it is. The only story worth living, Moses sets up this psalm in what I think is just a manual for life with these words, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mount, think about this, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, say it with me, you are God. So what Moses does in these verses is it's if, as if he could put us into a rocket and shoot us into the atmosphere of life itself, of life on planet Earth. And, he's, and he begins by saying, God, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. What is the word dwelling place? The concept is very simple. It's home. Home. Moses says, God, you are my home. You are the home of my heart. And what we've sat here and witnessed for the last hour is five people who have told us the story of their homeless journey, wandering through the wilderness and the ravage of life until they met Jesus. And they found out Jesus is the home their heart was always looking for the whole time. So Moses starts by saying, hey, you can have a home. God is a home for all generations. His heart is extended to humanity. But I want you to think about this as it pertains to Moses. Moses' story is as broken and disjointed and confusing and chaotic, and it's as disrupted as any story in the room. Moses is born as a Hebrew in slavery in Egypt. They're outnumbering the Egyptians, so Pharaoh says, kill the Egyptian babies. The midwives don't kill the babies, so uh, then he demands that they be slaughtered and thrown into the river. So Moses' mother hides him as long as she can, and then in a brilliant stroke of genius, she throws him into the river in a boat. So she obeys Pharaoh, but in a very clever way. 
She puts him in at a strategic moment and place where she knows he's going to float right by Pharaoh's daughter. She's just hoping that her beautiful baby boy will be too cute to kill, which is exactly what happens. Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby, adopts him. So before he even knows it, Moses was supposed to be trash. Throw him into a river. But then he's picked up and adopted by royalty, by the daughter of the most powerful leader in that region of the world, in that moment of human history. So as a Hebrew, now he's growing up in the palace of Egypt. His first 40 years are spent, and you talk about an identity crisis. Am I a slave or am I royalty? Who am I? Am I Hebrew or Egyptian? I'm Hebrew by blood, but I'm Egyptian by culture. I've been brought into this family that I don't really belong to. At 40 years of age, he blows it. He has a burden for his Egyptian slave family and extended brothers, and he sees the oppression, and he kills an Egyptian soldier. He commits murder, realizing he has committed a crime, and he's famous. He's the adopted child of Pharaoh's household. He runs for his life, and now he's a fugitive of justice. He crosses the Sinai Peninsula out through the desert, and lands, lands in the ends up in the land of Midian, which is northern, northwestern Saudi Arabia, just south of Israel, ends up as a shepherd, becomes a Bedouin nomadic shepherd, finds a wife, marries her, has a couple of boys, spends, tonight's 40, and spends 40 years, 40 more years out in the desert keeping sheep. So he was a slave, then he was a piece of trash, then he was adopted royalty, and Hebrew and Egyptian, and now he's out in the land of Midian, totally displaced. He's a criminal, fugitive. They're looking for him. His name, his name, picture on wanted posters. He's a shepherd, hanging out in the desert, keeping sheep, walking from mountain to mountain, oasis to oasis. He's married, he has a family. 40 years go by, God shows up. You know the story. Many of you, God appears to Moses in a burning bush and says, go back to Egypt. And I gotta, I gotta truncate all this. Pretty soon, Moses is confronting Pharaoh, demanding that he let the Hebrew slaves go by order of God. And then next thing you know, Moses turns around and there's nearly two million people following him out of Egypt. He's now the de facto leader of two million people, most of them Hebrews, some of them Egyptians, who have become worshipers of the true God. And now they're, they're, they're going to their promised land. And the story of the Exodus unfolds and the parting of the Red Sea and all the miraculous interventions of God. And several weeks go by, a year at the base of Mount Sinai where they're given laws and direction and order and God organizes them into a nation. And now they're traveling north, and they get to this place called Kadesh. They send the spies north to spy out the land to figure out how they're going to conquer it and map it out where God wants them to be. And the spies come back, and what, this has got to be one of the worst days of Moses' life. He is right there, right where he thought, man, this is it. This is, we're on the border of the promised land. He's been waiting 80 years for this moment and it's all about to come undone. Have you ever had an experience like that? You work hard at something and it all falls away. Have you ever lost everything? A lot of people during the pandemic lost a lot. Loved ones and, and businesses. And, and, and during the market crash back in the uh, 08, 09, uh, 
2011, 2012. A lot of losses. And life can do that. Life can build you up and then, boom, just flatten you. So they were on the board of the promised land and the 10 spies come back and they say, we can't do it. We don't want to go to Joshua and Caleb. Come on, we can do this. God's got this. Faithless people decide to rebel against God and disobey him. And I think just the worst day of Moses' life, he's almost home. He's never had a home up to this point. Track with me. He's never had a home. And he's almost home. And, and God says, now you're not going. Now you guys are going to wander the desert for 40 more years. And everybody that's 20 and older, you're not even going to go into the promised land. You're going to die in the desert and you're going to be buried. And I just always think, what if that was your 20th birthday? That would have been a bummer. God, could I just get a one-day pass? I was 19 like 12 hours ago. No, you are going to die in the desert. That's an interesting passage because everybody 19 and younger, here's what they were told. Everyone else is going to die except for Joshua and Caleb. And at that point, Moses still thought he would go into the promised land. But, but everyone else is going to die, and everyone 19 and younger is going to grow up in the wilderness, and they're going to conquer the promised land. And I, I just can imagine how depressed Moses must have been that day. 80 years have gone by now. He's going to spend another 40 in the wilderness, 38 at this point, in the wilderness. So somewhere along the way in those, in those next 38 years, Moses blows it, crosses a line, and God says, now you're not going to go into the promised land. And at 120, God says, hey, Moses, it's time for you to die. So go up to this mountain. I'm going to give you a chance to look over into the promised land, and then you're going to die. And he, he got the next generation ready. He equipped them. He taught them. He put all the directional stuff into Joshua's hands, and the story continues. And Moses goes up into the mountain, and he looks over to the land, and he dies. So I tell you that quick story because of this. Here's a man when he says, God is my home. He never had a home. And, and he, he, never, he never lived the story he wanted to live. He lived the story that God wrote for him. And we look back and we're like, Moses, he's one of the greatest characters in Scripture. And wow, what, a, what an amazing follower of God. What an amazing leader. And, and Moses would say, no, I, was, I, I just learned through life, I had no control over my story. And I learned to trust the one who did. And he became the home of my heart. And the story that he's writing is in verse 2. Very quickly, look at it. Before the mountains were brought forth, think about the chronology here. Wherever you formed the earth of the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So here's what Moses is saying to us, and here's why it's so hopeful. There's a story that starts before time. So if you have the beginning of time, and you go everlasting in that direction, so let's call that eternity past. And then you go to the end of time, and there is an end of time. There'll be an end of time for you, and then there'll be an end of time, like all of it. And after time is done, there's eternity forever, everlasting, everlasting to everlasting. This is the true story. And Moses says, hey, God, you are everlasting to everlasting. And so if I've got, if I need a home, I want my home to be totally embedded in the God who is everlasting to everlasting, who is writing a story in time that is eternal in scope 
and that keeps going in its significance. That's why I say this is a satellite view. And the God of creation comes to you and me and says, hey, my story's bigger than your story. I wrote you into my story. You are my creation. And your story with me goes everlasting to everlasting in its significance and says, wouldn't you like my heart to be your home? Pretty cool, huh? I mean, this makes like laundry tomorrow and work, it just gives it a whole different sense. Like every part of your life folded into this story matters on a much bigger scale as the created image bearer of God. All right, so that's a pretty awesome start. I've got to hurry to summarize verses 3 to 11, but you're going to be glad because you're not going to like these verses. Twelve years ago, I walked into a doctor's office with my wife, quite sure that I had a little more than 12. It was probably 13 years ago now. I was pretty sure I had some allergy issue. I had swollen lymph nodes under my arm and on my neck. They had been that way for several months. And my wife was kind of like, you need to go to the doctor. I'm like, ah, I, think, I think you probably just changed our detergent or something. I'm just allergic to something. I'm just fighting off. She's, finally, my wife's like, I'm taking you to the doctor. And it, thank, thankful for a good wife because I would probably be dead by now. Um, I would just was convinced I was fine. I felt fine. So I go to that doctor. They, they schedule me for a CAT scan. Nine o'clock one night on a Monday night, we get a call from a Russian doctor that I can barely understand. Nine o'clock at night, what doctor calls you to say, hey, you're good? They don't do that. <laughs> like, but nine o'clock, the day of my test, this guy calls me and he says, hey, you've got masses in your chest. And he wouldn't tell me anything else. He quickly like hung up the phone. And I looked at Dana and I go, I have masses in my chest. And he said, we're referring you to hematology and oncology. And so the next two days later, I'm, I'm sitting in a doctor's office, my friend, who I had helped come to the Lord like 12 years earlier. And he's looking at my scans and my tests with me. And he says, Carrie, I'm pretty sure you have cancer. And I'm like, okay, what's best worst case scenario? He said, well, best case is Hodgkin's lymphoma. That's 95% curable, treatable. And worst case would be... Um, other kinds of lymphoma, and that's less treatable and less curable, just depending on what kind you have. So I said, wait a minute, you're like best case is cancer, worst case is cancer? We still can't have best case, like my wife made me allergic to her chicken recipe or something? He said, no, he said, I'm 95% sure you have cancer. Now, I'm gonna, I tell you that story, and by the way, don't get sad, I lived. Isn't that a blessing? Okay. <laughs> God healed me. And, and I don't take that for granted. And I know we all have loved ones we've lost. And, 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 and so every day is a, is a bonus and a gift. Um, but in that moment, like, I, this is, here's the reality. I, have, I had cancer. That was the truth. I could pretend it was an allergy. I could pretend that I was okay. I could tell myself I was fine. They're all wrong, and I would have died. So sometimes we need hard truth. If it's true, we need it, right? I mean, we have this ability as human beings to talk ourselves out of things that are true. We pretend we're never going to die. 
Uh, you can have a toothache and you know the toothache doesn't go away. It's not gonna get better. It doesn't just ma magically heal itself. You know the longer you don't go to the dentist, the more work that tooth is gonna need. But what do you do? Ah, uh, give me some aspirin. I don't wanna go to the dentist. You, we just kick it down the road. I've, I have not been able to see well for four years because my lenses were out of date and they were scratched. And finally, like a month ago, I said, Dana, just schedule me an eye appointment. I've got to get these lenses fixed. And finally got new lenses. I'm like, whoa, everything's so nice. I can see everything. You know, for four years, I'm, I, I, can, I can see later. We kick the can of truth down the road. But you know what Christianity is? You know what Jesus is? Jesus comes to us and puts truth right up in front of our face so that we can reckon with hard realities that point us to greater hope. You see, the story of the Bible is good news. Say, but there's a lot of hard things in the Bible. There's things like wrath and judgment and justice. Yeah, because those are true things. Sin will experience justice. Sin and death and Satan have to die. If God is good, he's gonna judge these things. But the thing is, if God is good, he's gonna judge them. Like, if, if there isn't God and there is no judge, then what hope is there for the world? Good luck. But if there is a judge, there is a God, and he is perfect and just, what hope is there for me? Because I've broken his laws. And so we don't like the idea, we don't like the negative aspects of the Bible, but can I just tell you why they're there? The negative aspects of the Bible are there because they are true diagnostics. Like I needed a loving doctor to sit me down and say, you have cancer, but we can cure it. Can I tell you what the God of creation has done through his word, the Bible? He has given us a negative diagnostic. Hey, you're dying. You're sick with a condition called sin and it will destroy you. It will banish you from my presence forever and you need to know this, there's a cure. You see, several weeks went by, the doctors did all my tests, and for three or four weeks, probably five, I wasn't sure what kind of cancer I had, and I'm frankly preparing to die. I'm talking to friends about talking, you know, encouraging my kids after I'm gone. I'm talking to Dana about my life insurance and trying to get things in order. And, and the doctor called one day and said, you have Hodgkin's lymphoma, which to me was 95% chance of cure. And I mean, I'm, yeah, I called my wife, I get to live. That was a happy day. Do you realize the message of the Bible is you're dying, you're sick with sin, but there's a cure. And if you reject the cure, you're gonna die. But if you receive the cure, you're gonna live. That's the message of the whole Bible. That God came running into time and space to provide a cure for our sin. And while there's time, while we have life and breath, the biggest decision we can make is to choose him, to trust him, to put our faith in Jesus as Savior because he's the only cure. Well, wait, I got baptized. I, I went to church. I got, I got confirmed. I do confession. I burn candles. I give to the Red Cross. I, I, I do good things. None of those, that's all good and fine. None of those things are a cure for sin. Being a good person, being a generous person, being a moral person does not cure, like, I love cinnamon rolls. And I'm pretty sure, I was telling myself this, I know they're gonna do chemo and radiation, but I'm pretty sure if I eat cinnamon rolls, that will cure cancer too. <laughs> That's what religion is in our lives. 
oh, I'm going to be good and do all these things, so that'll cure my sin problem. No, it won't. There's only one cure for our sin, and that's Jesus. Now, why do I tell you all that? Because in verses 3 to 11, Moses is going to, I'm going to summarize it this way. Life is, life is short. It blows by, he says. Life is hard. He talks about the hardness of life and the, 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 the travail and the sorrow and the grief. And he says, hey, even if you live a long life, 70, 80, 90 years or more, even if you have the best life, it's still going to have plenty of hardship, plenty of sorrow, plenty of grief. And I know we try to avoid all that, but hey, it's, it's kind of like that's the truth. The sooner I understand that this is a broken world that I live in, a fallen creation, what did Jesus say? In the world you shall have tribulation. But then he said this, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Like, don't worry about it. If you've got me, you win. It's kind of like the day the doctor called me and said, you've got Hodgkin's lymphoma. This doctor, um, his name was Aminu Birhan. He was Ethiopian man, Muslim man. I got to share the gospel with him many times. Um, one day I went to see him and he couldn't swallow because some ritual religious thing that the Muslims do some week of the year. He said, I can't swallow all week. I said, are you kidding me? Because I wanted to take him to lunch. He said, I can't swallow. I said, you need to become a Christian. <laughs> and at this point, this is like my third time to share the gospel. And he goes, I have been thinking of that, really. I have been thinking. <laughs> I said, because right now I'm going to go swallow some food. Um, but anyway, this man looked at me when I first met him, and he said, you have Hodgkin's lymphoma. I'm going to take over your life for a year. You have to do exactly what I say but we're gonna cure you. We're gonna kill cancer and save you. And then you're gonna go, and he, this was prophetic and crazy. He said, then you're gonna go pastor your own church somewhere. And I'm like, look, I wanna live, but I don't wanna go be a pastor. <laughs> and God brought all that to happen. Here's, here's my point. Jesus comes into the world and says, you're dying with sin, but I'm the cure. And if you want me, you can have me. So Moses is gonna say, life is short, Life is hard. But let me tell you the big thing Moses is going to say in verses 3 to 11. Life is desperate. And here's what I mean. We are all under sin. We're all under God's wrath. So let me read it quickly with you and we're almost done. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, old children of man, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it's past or as a watch in the night. It's short. You sweep them away, the previous generation, as a flood. They're like a dream, like were they here? Moses is still alive. They're all gone. Uh, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it's renewed. And even it fades, and in the evening it fades and withers. Your life is like a blade of grass growing up and dying. Um, verse 7, for we're brought to an end by your anger. Now his sense of this was the chastening of the 40 years in the wilderness of their rebellion against God. Our sense of it through a New Testament lens is, yeah, we've sinned. God is holy, perfect, righteous. We are not, which makes us, whether we want to be or not, that's not the point. Judicially, in the courtroom of heaven, we're guilty. Before God, we're guilty. The judge of the universe says we're guilty. And we all know that. Nobody in the room would say you're perfect, which makes us guilty before God. He begins to unfold the idea of wrath. Remember this. I don't have time to unpack it. 
God's wrath is a very good thing. It's a, it's, it's a terrible thing, but it's a good thing. It's, it's like the wrath of a passionately protective, loving father jumping in front of danger to protect his kids. It's just wrath. It's perfect wrath. It's good wrath. You don't want a God that isn't wrathful against sin and death and destruction because if he isn't, then he's not good. God's wrath is a reflection of his love, a reflection of his goodness. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Okay. So he's, Moses just says, we, we feel like we're overwhelmed by your wrath. Now, the psalm is written so that by verse 11, you're, you're a little bit confused. The average reader would be going, wait a minute. A- am I under God's wrath or is he the home of my heart? Because Moses, you sound a little bipolar. On one hand, you say, God, you're the home of my heart. And in verses 3 to 11, but I'm under your wrath and your wrath is so big. And my sin is before you. So God, which, which is it? And by the way, when you read scripture, you'll often feel that same tension. You'll come to passages and you'll like, oh, is God going to destroy me? Or does he love me? And the Bible's written in such a way that it, God wants you to ask that question. Because the question of all the scripture is, how does God satisfy his righteous judgeship? How does he satisfy justice and save us in our sin? Does he wink at sin because that makes him unholy? Does he hide our sin? That makes him unholy. He would compromise his holiness to love us? Or, or, or does he honor his holiness and destroy us? Which is it? And in some pages you're like, oh, God's going to save me. He loves me. But in others you're like, oh, he's going to destroy me because I deserve his wrath because I'm sinful. And God kind of wants you asking that question, which brings us, I didn't give you guys my points. My first one is the only story worth living. My second point, if you put that slide up quickly, is harder than we imagine. That's where we are now in verses 3 to 11. Look at the first word of verse 12. Because the third thought here is it's better than we dreamed. It's better than we dreamed. And I'm going to fly to the end. Look at the first word of verse 12. What does it say? Shout it out. So. So everything following this is Moses appropriating what is true. And here's what he's established. God is the God of the universe. Everlasting to everlasting. And he wants to be the home of my heart forever. But there's a big problem. Life is short, life is hard, and we are under wrath. We're under God's just judgment and justice. So Moses says, God, it's a prayer, so teach us. So God, we're in this juxtaposition between you're the home of our hearts and you're the judge of our souls. So God, teach us. And what does, he, what does he say to teach us? Teach us to number our days. That, that means to consider the brevity of life, to consider the fact that so much of the story that we're living for isn't going to live on forever, isn't going to last, we're just going to lose it. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom is God's understanding of things. Wisdom is God's perspective on things. And so the centerpiece of God's wisdom personified is Jesus. But the centerpiece of God's wisdom in story or in principle is the gospel. And that is, I can't 
get to God on my own, so he came to me. Let's keep reading. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Verse 13 and 14 are the resolution of the tension. The question is answered here. Is God my judge and he's going to destroy me? Or is he my savior and the home of my heart? Which is it? And here's what Moses says. God, could you have pity? So God, I know I deserve your justice, but is there a way that I could have pity instead? And then he says this in verse 14. This is huge. I think this is the most important verse in the psalm. They're all pretty important, but this one. Satisfy us, that means fulfill us, like to overflowing. Satisfy us in the morning or early, maybe, maybe early in life, with your steadfast love. The word, to say it in one word, the word is mercy. Mercy is this. It is God somehow finding a way to not give all of us what we deserve and instead give us what he wants to give us. So you have this perfect holy judge who is also loving and he says, my justice demands that I bring judgment on sin. If I don't, I'm not good. But my heart and my love wants to save you, rescue you from that justice. You say, well, what is? How is that possible? And the word is mercy. And help me out. You guys talk to me. Did God show us his mercy in human history? Yes. How, what was the pinnacle moment of God showing humanity his mercy? The cross. Sounds like you've been preaching the gospel. (laughs) Jesus on the cross, here's what happened. God said, I'll come in person. You can never get to me, I'll come for you. I'll live the perfect life you can't live. I'll fulfill fulfill all the demands of, of righteousness, perfection. Then I will go to a cross, voluntarily lay down and be crucified and I will shed my perfect blood as an atonement, as a payment, as a sacrifice for your sin. And here's what that allows the judge of the universe to do. It allows him to pour out his justice and his judgment, his wrath, his good, righteous wrath on himself. And anybody that receives that mercy, mercy and love can flow your direction. So the judge of the universe steps down off the judge's bench down to where the criminal is, that's you and me, and says, let me take your place. You're guilty, a punishment, a penalty has to be paid, a sacrifice has to be made, but I don't want you to make it. I'll stand in your place, I'll take, I'll bear the wrath, I'll I'll go under judgment for you, I'll fulfill all the demands of judgment, so judgment flows to Jesus Mercy flows to you from everlasting to everlasting forever. You live not as an object of God's wrath, an object of God's mercy, an object of God's love. From there, from the moment you make that decision, what happens? Verse 
14, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. What is the only way you could really be joyful in this life? There's some fake ways to be joyful. Numb the pain enough to where you can pretend you're joyful. Go on a vacation and pretend you don't have a lot of problems for a week. Then you can have some temporary joy. But what is the only way in the face of death and hardship and the brevity of life and all the brokenness of this world to be overwhelmingly joyful? To know that your God wins and that you belong to him, that you are the object of his mercy. And this is why the gospel is the good news that transcends all possible bad news. This is how you wake up every day going, I am ch- I'm God's child. On my worst day, I'm a child of God. On my best day, I'm a child of God. Look at the rest of this verse, these verses and then we'll go eat nachos, right? <laughs> verse 15, make us glad as for as many days as you have afflicted us. You know what the gospel does? Every one of these five stories and your story included, it swings the, negative, the deficit of pain and hurt and scars and wreckage and regret in your life. It brings the needle so far into the positive that it swallows up all the negative. It's awesome. God, God brings gladness into our souls. And then he prays this, and this is where, as a church, you can embrace these values corporately. Let your work be shown to your servants. God, show us your work. Where are you working? Bring us into that work and your glorious power to their children. Let our kids see your beauty, your glory. God, let them see the redemption and the gospel and the glory of your love and let them choose you, not because we mandate it, not because we legislate it, but because they see your attractive qualities in us. They see your beauty and your glory in us. And that's what verse 17 says. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us. So Moses has gone from God, you're my home, to everything stinks, life is hard, life is short, and we're under judgment, to but I can wake up every day and I can be the object of God's mercy, which makes me, uh, gives me a reason to be glad, and I can engage in God's work, and I can celebrate his work as glorious, and we can prepare the next generation by showing them the beauty of our God. And look at verse 17, and we're done. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. He says it twice, establish the work of our hands. Here it is. With Jesus, your life now has eternal meaning. The work you do today and tomorrow and the next day has eternal value, significance. And Moses is no more bemoaning the brevity of life and the hardship of life and the judgments of life. No, now he's saying, Make our lives matter. Give us a work that's fruitful, that's durable, that's generationally blessed. Give us a work that matters to you. Isn't this a great song? So my challenge, very quickly and we're done. If you have never made Jesus your savior, you watch the stories, you watch the baptisms, you're like, what is this? This is the God of heaven on a rescue mission for your heart. And if you've never received Jesus Christ as as Savior, today is the best moment. Right now is the best moment to say, Jesus, come into my life. I believe you. I trust you. I receive you. I want you to save me. What are you doing? You're You're saying what I said to the doctor. I want your treatments. 
I want your cure for my cancer. And what you're saying is, I realize I'm sick. I realize I'm sinful. And God, you're the only cure. Jesus on the cross is the only cure. And so I trust. I receive. I believe. You can make that decision right now today. Prayer is simply talking to God. It's a decision of the heart to believe. It's a decision of prayer to ask, to receive, to declare. Like these people stood up here and said, Jesus is my Savior. If you know Jesus as your Savior, here's my challenge to you. Release the tension of trying to write your story and trying to force God into your framework. It's a losing battle. Give it back to him and say, God, you write the story. I'll walk the path. I'll follow you. You make my life whatever you want to make it. You write the story through my life that you want to write. I'm yours. This is what Mary said when the angel came and said, hey, you're going to have a baby. He wrecked her whole plan. But what did she say? Behold, the handmaid, the servant of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. Let's pray, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time, for this psalm. We've just really scratched the surface, but what a powerful psalm that we can have a home for our hearts that we can be brought out from under wrath and judgment and condemnation, that we can be defined forever as the objects of your steadfast love, your mercy, your grace. It is unspeakably good. And I pray that in the quietness of this moment right now before we go eat and fellowship, that we will respond. Now, my friends, just with our heads bowed and eyes closed for a moment, I want to encourage you. We're going to sing a song in just a moment and be on our way. But in the quietness of this moment, would you talk to God? If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, if, if you don't remember the moment you received him, right now could be that moment. Talk to him. Ask him to come into your life and be your savior. Sincerity is critical here. Like the young lady talked a little while ago, it's not a magic prayer. It's a decision of the heart. I choose Jesus. If you are making that decision today, please tell somebody. Tell the friend that brought you. Tell one of the pastors. There's resources here. Stop by the table in the back on the way out. This church will help you move forward in a new life with Jesus. If you're not sure you're ready to make that decision, maybe you're sitting here, you've got questions, and, and you want to sit and talk with somebody, please, these church, this church family lives for those conversations, loves to answer those questions. If you're a believer and you find yourself in a wrestling match with God, you're trying to write a story in resistance to his, then just put the pen back in his hand right now. God, I, I yield. I surrender. You win. I'm going to stop fighting you. I'm going to live the life you've given me. I'm going to embrace the opportunities, the responsibilities, and the callings you've placed on me. God, I'm going to stop trying to be self-determined, and I'm going to let you write the story. It's the only story worth living. It is harder than we imagine, but it is better than we dreamed. Thank you, God. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these five years, how you've blessed 
John and Amy and Joel and Christine and others that helped them early on and joined them in the work. And it is, it is so truly a story that, that gives you glory. And we thank you. God, I pray for this church family that the beauty, the favor of the Lord would be upon them. And that as they go out of these doors into their lives this week, that they would accurately reflect the gospel that holds them. That they would be conduits of your loving kindness. That they would be givers of your mercy. That they would share the story with others. And God, I pray for this church as a body that their greatest days are yet ahead. I long to see the story continue. The lives that we haven't met, the hearts that haven't been saved yet. This, this is just the beginning. So fill this pastor and this team with your spirit, your grace, and your power. Provide for their needs. Let this church body stay unified encouraging, uplifting, cheering each other on. Let them be a body that supports each other, encourages each other, and stays on mission, waving the flag of the gospel, declaring the good news, giving hope to hopeless hearts. Thank you, God, for the home that you are to all of us. We love you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.